Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, as we read that passage together just now, let me ask you a question. Did it make you at all uncomfortable? I hope that you were able to feel some of the, uh, the awkwardness, the intimacy and the impropriety, the, the scandal of what's going on. If you tuned in last Sunday to watch Taylor Swift watch her boyfriend play football, uh, you might have seen during one of the commercial breaks the uh, He Gets Us foot washing commercial. If you didn't see the commercial, it's a series of images depicting unexpected people having their feet washed by their would-be enemies. And honestly, I really liked the commercial. It was only when I checked in online later on that I realized I was supposed to have hated it. Right? And so I've heard the arguments from both sides of the aisle about why this is a bad commercial. If you don't like this illustration, don't at me, bro, or don't at me, sis. You know, um, <laughs> I like the commercial. Um, if nothing else, what this advertisement conveyed so well is the weirdness and the intimacy of foot washing. Just so we're clear, in this story, okay, in this original context, these people, they would have had some category for kind of the ritual of washing guests' feet as they came uh, into your house for a meal. It was always a job that was given to the lowest person, the lowest servant on the totem pole, right? They would have recognized that, but in, in terms of the way that this happens, just to be clear, this would have been just as stunning and striking to them then as it should be to us today. Jesus is invited to dinner by a Pharisee named Simon. And if you're somewhat Bible aware, your brain has probably been trained to think Pharisee equals bad guy, okay? So Simon, bad guy in this story, right? We're thinking it before the story even starts. But remember, at this time, in this context, the Pharisees were arguably the most religiously, politically, culturally esteemed members of Jewish society, And so Simon the Pharisee has the position and the privilege where he can invite Jesus to dinner and he should expect Jesus to say yes. And maybe even for Jesus to feel a little bit honored to have been invited to Simon's house. Then something unexpected and upsetting happens. And if you can, I mean, use your imagination to be there, to watch this unfold. Right? Jesus is there and somehow an uninvited guest gets in. Do you think that every eye in the room turned toward her? What do you think the expressions on their faces were like? And I like to imagine that Jesus probably pretended to be oblivious at first, just watched them, watched her. Everyone knows who this woman is, and not in a good way. She is infamous. She is a notorious Sinner, And so Jesus is at the table. It says he's reclining at the table because these tables were low to the ground and people would sort of lay to the side and lean on a cushion with their feet out behind them. And this woman comes in and as she, she kneels down, she begins to cry. And tears start streaming down her face and dripping off her cheeks. And she uses her tears and her hair to wash Jesus' feet something that Simon hadn't done. 
She opens a flask of perfume, which is probably one of the more valuable possessions that she has, and she uses it to anoint Jesus' feet, tears and hair streaming down, perfume and kisses covering Jesus. Can you feel the intimacy? Can you feel the impropriety? Was it inappropriate, or was it actually the most appropriate and wonderful thing happening in the whole universe at that moment? Now, Simon sees all of this unfolding, and he thinks to himself, if this Jesus were really such a great prophet and a religious teacher, he would understand the absolute travesty of what is happening right now. He would know the dirty hands that are touching him. He would know what kind of lips are kissing him. And Simon turns to Jesus, and he says, or Jesus turns to Simon, and he says, Simon, I want to ask you something. And he asks Simon a short, simple little parable. We'll come back to that. And then look what happens. In the kindness, in the kindest and most intimate way imaginable, Jesus forgives and dignifies and loves this woman. As we said in our call to worship, he crowns her with mercy and steadfast love. Notice, and this is important, notice that he never denies that she is a big-time sinner. Verse 47 of the passage, he confirms that he knows her sins are many and that she has much to be forgiven for. But what we see at the end of this story is that in the truest sense, the most righteous person, the most right-with-God person in the room is this woman. Whereas Simon the Pharisee should be highly concerned with his own standing before God. What a story. Does it amaze you? Does it shock you? Does it convict you? Three points to consider this morning. The severity of our sin, the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy, and so what? Severity, sufficiency, so what? First, the severity of our sin. Again, notice that neither the woman nor Jesus denies or downplays the reality that she is a severe sinner. And based on our preconceptions, based on our discomfort with this situation, we might wish that Jesus had done otherwise, right? Simon, do you see this woman? Her sins aren't that bad. Really, she's a product of her environment, a victim of bad circumstances. Her sin isn't that big of a deal, and so I'm choosing to look past it, and so should you, right? Jesus doesn't say that. And in fact, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever, and nowhere in the Bible does God ever downplay or deny the severity of sin. Never. Not once. When Adam and Eve committed the first sin in human history, what was the very next thing that they did? Do you remember? They hid, they tried to cover up, and they blame shifted. And every human being that has lived ever since then has done the same thing. That is our most natural response to realizing that we are sinners. We should assume that our capacity to deny or downplay our own sinfulness is almost always greater than we think that it is. But God doesn't downplay the severity of sin anywhere in the Bible, and Jesus doesn't do so in this story. Rather, Jesus seems to be saying that a deep understanding of the severity of my sin is the essential first step toward forgiveness and love. Now, if you're paying attention and your heart is engaged with this story, if your heart is engaged with what I'm saying, there should be all sorts of questions and concerns bubbling up 
right now. Okay, that, that's good. That means that you are paying attention. Me too. At first blush, we have an averse reaction to this. And two questions we could ask, one general and one personal. The general question is, why does the Bible, why does Christianity, why does God seem so intent on making a big deal about sin? I mean, isn't sin an antiquated idea? Don't we know the psychological harm and the anxiety and the shame that these old religious notions induce at this point in our enlightened human history? Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you thought that? Right? Good. That means you're paying attention. Okay? You're feeling the weight of this passage. Generally, why does God make such a big deal about sin? But more personally, I think more pressing, it makes me very uncomfortable and even scared to make a big deal about my sin. I just want to acknowledge I'm going to say the word sin approximately 100 times in this sermon, because that's what this sermon is about, and that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. And if you tell me God wants you to deal with the severity of your sin trip, that's scary. Right? That's painful. Right? Why should I look at my sinfulness and even lean into it as opposed to avoiding, downplaying, or denying? Right? So what I want to do here is I want to try to use a series of analogies to help us understand why God makes a big deal about sin generally, and then I want to suggest that no matter how severe we think our sin is, it's actually worse, and in fact, there is only one sense in which you can overestimate the severity of your sin. There's only one way that you can overestimate your sin. Okay, now this might feel a bit disjointed. I'm going to use three different analogies in succession here. Hold on to them, and then what we're going to do is we're going to roll them all together, all right? Let's try to hold on to them if you can. Okay, first one, the tape recorder analogy. You can tell that this one is dated by the name, right? If you don't know what a tape recorder is, it's the thing that we use to record our voices before we had iPhone voice memo, okay? So imagine you have a recording device hanging around your neck. And for a whole year, every time that you say something that you think someone should do, a way that someone else should behave, right, an ought to or a should, a moral imperative, that recording device flips on and it records that should, and then at the end of the year, all of those shoulds are compiled into one single record, one single law, and then you are judged by that law for the remainder of your life. How would you do? I would be in enormous trouble, right? I can't overstate how big of a trouble I personally would be in. It's an odd analogy, but it highlights this question. If there is such a thing as universal morality, universally transmissible right and wrong, then who gets to say what it is? Who gets to define the rules? Who gets to draw the line? And usually I operate as if I do, right? And where do I draw the line, right? It's kind of right comfortably below wherever I am right now, right? Second, the drug dealer analogy. Imagine that a local high school is discovered to have a serious drug problem. And as the problem worsens, the principal says, hey, you know what? Not a big deal. This is not a priority for us right now. We have other things to worry about. Right? We would say that's bad. And drugs would run rampant through that school. But imagine if the FBI right, or the president of the United States or the executive branch said, fentanyl, not a big deal. Not a big problem for us right now. Not a priority. Right, that would be much, much worse. Right? 
Or you can simply think about how when a local court makes a decision that we don't like, that we think is the wrong decision, what do we say? Right, we say, I hope this makes it to the Supreme Court, and I hope that they make the right decision. And Lord, help us if they don't. Why? Because the dominion and authority of a judge determines how significant the decisions that that judge makes are. Third, Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa analogy, okay? If you come over to my house, Brentley and I have this bulletin board where we hang all of our kids' artwork. It's right in the kitchen, and we put it, we're proud of their artwork that they bring home, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of artwork, right? And, and we hang them up there, all right? You come over to my house, and you take one look at Keller's most recent finger painting, and then you spit right in the middle of it. It'd be a weird thing to do, but what do you think would happen, right? I'd say, get out of my house. I'd probably unfriend you. You wouldn't be invited back over again. But if I called the police and I said, I want this man arrested, right? I want him fined. They'd say, okay, sir, calm down. He spit on a finger painting, right? If you went to the Louvre in Paris and you did the same thing to the Mona Lisa, do you think that the police would show up? Do you think that you would be fined? Right? There is no financial amount that they could slap on you that would be enough. You would never be allowed into any art museum ever again. Right? Here's the point. What that analogy shows is that the consequence for a transgression is directly proportional to the value of the thing transgressed. Right? That a consequence, the consequence for an offense has everything to do with the value of the thing offended, right? Now, take those three and roll them together. If there is such a thing as universal morality, then there would have to be a personal God who gets the final say on what right and wrong is. And in fact, we should expect and even want that God to tell us the truth about what is right and wrong, about what is sin. And, and that's exactly what he's done. And if God is the ultimate judge of all evil, if he is the highest court of appeals, then such a judge would have to decide and execute his justice with perfect equity, with perfect fairness. And in fact, if God didn't take sin seriously and guarantee to judge sin fairly, we should expect evil to run amok everywhere all the time. And if, and this is the hardest one for us to understand, if the thing offended, the thing transgressed, is God himself. That is, if what sin is most fundamentally is the rejection and the rebellion against the holiness of God, including his infinite worth and beauty invested in human beings made in his image, then we might expect for the consequences for such sin to be severe. And we might even go so far to say that if the thing offended is of infinite value, then the consequence, the cost, should also be infinite. Right? That's the reason why God takes sin so seriously. The stakes could not be higher, and his responsibility to uphold them could not be more determinative, more important. Right? Now, that's the philosophical answer to the general question. But we also need the personal answer to the more pressing question, why should I take my sin seriously? Why does Jesus want me to have a big sense of the severity of my sin? And the answer is 
because accurate diagnosis is the first step toward forgiveness and healing. If a doctor gives you a diagnosis of serious sickness, there are two circumstances under which that is a bad thing, right? Under which that is almost an unacceptable thing to us. And those two circumstances are if it's not true or if it's not treatable, right? If a doctor says to you, you have a serious sickness, your life is in danger, and you come to find out that that's a false diagnosis, you say, well, that was a very bad thing, and that's a very bad doctor, right? I'm going to find a new one. But if he says to you, you have a serious sickness, your life is in danger, and there is no known cure, that's even worse. But if it's true, and if it's treatable, then an accurate diagnosis, diagnosis is essential. It's still scary. It's still painful. It still hurts, but it is the first step toward healing and recovery. Now, I can remember the, time in, in, the times in my life when I was struck by the severity of my sin in a new and deeper way, right? When I was 10 years old, and my parents dragged me against my will week after week to kids' Bible study fellowship, BSF, what a terrible thing for them to do, right? And for some reason, one evening, a simple Bible lesson from a humble volunteer got through to my heart, and I was convicted for the first time that I, Trip Smith, was a sinner, not in the abstract, but in the real particulars. And that night, a miracle happened. And I kneeled by my bed, and I prayed next to my mom that Jesus would forgive me for my sins and save me. Or when I was 20, Campus Crusade Winter Conference, and God used a few close friends to show me that I was living a hypocritical double life and had been for years, that I pretended to be about Jesus on Sundays but I lived almost exclusively for my own pleasure and self-promotion Monday through Saturday, and God showed me the danger and the darkness of that condition. After I said that in the first service, by the way, Ryan Stanley came up to me afterwards, and he was like, don't you still do that now? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I guess, most of the time. And he's like, you should tell people that. So (laughs) when Brentley and I got engaged... And I realized that I needed to confess to her some serious sexual sin that I had committed in the years and months and even the days before knowing her and committing to her. And God showed me my sexual sin and my sexual brokenness more clearly and in a painful way. Or just last year when God spent most of 2023 using people at this church who love me to say, hey, Tripp, you are a much more arrogant and insecure and cold and self-righteous person than you even realize. Or a few days ago when Brentley told me that my anger and my controllingness usually is the main driver in how I discipline our children. New and deepening revelations of the severity of my sin. And do you know what all of those instances had in common? One is they hurt. The vulnerability was scary and painful I didn't want to look into it, much less lean into it. And each of those instances became a doorway into a deeper understanding and a deeper experience of the mercy and the love of Jesus. To see my mom, to see my college mentor, to see Stinkin' Matt Ham, who's really good at this, to see Brentley look me in the eyes and say, yes, your sin is severe, and Jesus forgives you. Jesus loves you. When that happens, 
That is where healing and new life are found. And that's what happened to the woman in this story. I pray that it's what he keeps happening to me, even though that's a scary prayer to pray. And maybe it's happening to you this morning for the first time or the 500th time. Recognize that that is painful, and it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and that Jesus loves you. Right? I said a minute ago that there's only one sense in which you can overestimate your sin. Right? Here it is. The only way that you can overestimate the severity of your sin is to believe that it is too bad for Jesus to forgive. There's only one way that you can overestimate your sin, and it's to believe that it's too big for Jesus to handle. Second point, the sufficiency of Jesus' mercy. There has never been so great a sin or so severe a sinner that Jesus can't or won't forgive. And if you can think of the moments in your life when you had the clearest and deepest understanding of your sinfulness, I mean, when you had a big, clear idea of it in your head and in your heart, and then if you can imagine taking a little bottle of ink and dumping it in the ocean, right, that's what it's like when you come to Jesus with severe sin, right? It's thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Right? That is the key to understanding this passage. Right? That's why Jack Miller, the pastor who created Sonship, summarized the gospel as, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. Right? Though I am more sinful than I know, with Jesus I am more forgiven and accepted and loved than I can fathom. Now the question is, how could that possibly be true? If what we said earlier, right, if what we said earlier is true, that our sins are against God's infinite worth and his worth invested in human beings made in his image, and if God, as the perfect judge of the universe who holds up justice and morality, always punishes all sin with fairness and with equity, then how can Jesus, who is God in the flesh, king of kings, and the judge seated upon the judgment throne, how can Jesus forgive this woman so completely and love her so profoundly? And the answer is in the little parable that Jesus tells right in the middle of this passage. And lo and behold, it's a parable about a banker. It's a parable about debt forgiveness. Right? One person owes a debt of $300,000. The other owes a debt of $30,000, and both are forgiven. Who is more grateful the surface point that Jesus is making with that parable is that responsive gratitude is always directly related to mercy magnitude. Right? And that's an important point, okay? But don't miss something even more fundamental. This, okay, this is a financially literate group, right? And so we know when a debt is forgiven, does that monetary value just go away? In other words, does the debt just arbitrarily disappear without any consequence? Right? The U.S. government wants you to think so, right? But that's not true. <laughs> it's not true, and we know that it's not true, right? The debt doesn't go away. What happens? No, the, the, the forgiver takes that loss upon themselves, right? They take that value into themselves and say, I don't expect you to repay this anymore. I will take the loss. I will take the debt. I will pay the cost, right? And if the debt that we're talking about is transgression of God's infinite value, then where does that go? Jesus. Jesus takes the loss. 
In his life, Jesus built an account of total human righteousness, but in his death, he received the infinite consequence of sin into himself. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus forgave this woman, I mean, again, use your imagination here. Put yourself in her place. When Jesus forgave this woman, he knew that the feet that she was kissing and the hands that lifted her face in dignity and restoration would soon be pierced with nails. The face that smiled at her with acceptance and love would soon be covered with blood and with anguish. We stood beneath a debt that we can never afford, but his blood was the payment. His life was the cost. How do you know that your sin is more severe than you even realize? Look at Jesus on the cross. How do you know that his mercy is infinitely greater than your sin? Look at Jesus on the cross. And how do you know that Jesus loves you extravagantly? Look at the cross. We should say a quick word about shame, right? Maybe rattling around in the back of your mind is this idea that like, okay, well, isn't this a very shame-inducing concept? We're talking about sin so much. What about shame? And just as it turned out this weekend, or this week, I was listening to two different podcasts, right? One about shame, the other about anxiety. We talked about anxiety last week. These are the two worst problems that we all face and that we're supposed to be doing something about Right? And these, these both, both of these podcasts were saying when it comes to shame and anxiety, right, if you go to secular sort of psychology, these weren't Christian podcasts, by the way. If you go to secular therapy, they're going to teach you different strategies for tolerating and for coping with shame, right? To, to, to increase your tolerance. Right? And if you go to social media experts, right, they're going to say, Oh, you're feeling shame? You're feeling anxiety? I have the answer for you. Don't. Don't do it anymore, right? And am I saying that secular therapy, that secular psychology is bad? Like, no, not at all. There are useful things that it can teach us and train us for, right? Am I saying that social media influencers who try to help you deal with your shame and anxiety are bad? Yes, I am saying that. And you should stop following them. You should stop listening to them, okay? But here's the point. The only true cure for shame is to bring your severe sin to Jesus and to have him look you in the face and say, I am not ashamed of you. I forgive you and I love to call you my friend, love to call you my brother, my sister, and I am not ashamed of you. So what? We'll end really quickly with this. So what? Three practical applications, really three applications for three different types of people in the room this morning. Some of us are like Simon, okay? I am so, so at risk of being Simon in this story. I'm not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as this woman. And maybe Jesus should even be a little bit honored that I asked him into my house today. And if that's you, what you need to recognize is that there could not be a more spiritually dangerous position to be in than that. And your only application from this sermon is to ask Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit to convict you of the severity of your sin situation. But... Some of us, and I hope many of us, see ourselves in this woman. You've gotten and are getting a fuller understanding of your sinfulness, 
and you know that you can't fix it yourself. And the application for you is rejoice. That is the only application. Celebrate. Rejoice. Come to Jesus with your big sin and hear him say, I forgive you, I love you, go in peace. Right? We can so quickly be like, well, I'm going to pay him back. Right? I'm going to return the favor. That's not what he wants. All that he wants you to do is to rejoice, to worship, to celebrate. That's all you have to do. Okay. Lastly, all of us in this room find ourselves in the unenviable position of being a part of a church giving campaign. Right? What does this passage have to do with that? As Breck highlighted really well, the, the name of this sermon series that goes along with this giving initiative is Grace, Gratitude, Generosity. Because when you start to get a big idea of the grace that you have received from Jesus, the natural result in your heart will be gratitude, and the practical outworking of that gratitude will be generosity. But here's the thing, and this is actually, I think, the important and profound thing, right, is that sometimes that practical generosity actually becomes a window to a deeper enjoyment of God's grace. Right? That is, when you, especially if you have an idolatry of money problem, which is to say all of us, right, when you give your money away without regard for return on investment, and when you say, God, I'm trying to be grateful here, and I'm not even sure that I believe this stuff, sometimes what he does is he will meet you there with a new understanding of his love and his mercy and his freedom. He loves to do that. He loves to meet us in our generosity with even even bigger understanding of his grace. That is the invitation of this giving campaign. We don't want you to give us money because you feel guilty, and we don't want you to give us money to make this room more cushy, right? We want you to give us money because we want you to celebrate the freedom that Jesus has given you and invite others to receive his mercy as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this passage. We thank you of the story of this courageous woman, Lord, and I look forward to the day when we get to meet her in heaven, Lord, and to celebrate your grace together. Pray that you would help each one of us in this room to realize that we are her, that we need to receive your mercy at your feet, but because you've done everything necessary, God, to forgive us in Christ, that we can come to you and receive major mercy for our severe sin. Would you remind us of that anew even this morning? Press that truth into our hearts, we pray. Amen.